I know I, I told you we I'd kind of be respectful of your time, but I'm not going to do that because I had a, I still have another question about um, <laughs> I have another question That's about fine. omega threes. <laughs> the the um, when you think about what's important related to omega threes, and we'll specifically, I mean, I know you mentioned uh, brain health, um, but but specifically related to uh, ocular surface um, issues. What, what do you think is important? Why do we get sometimes we'll see big studies like the dream study that everybody kind of <clears throat> says, oh, omega-3s aren't helpful. But then you get a lot of other smaller studies that do find a, benef- a benefit based on symptoms. And I mean, what's your, what's your thought on that? How, what, how should we be thinking about it? Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I have a great conversation with Dr. Jim Stringham about carotenoids, about um, infl- inflammation with dry eye inflammation and how we can control that dry eye with omega-3s, the evidence behind different types of supplements and nutrients that we may be recommending for our patients. It's a great conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. I want to talk about the MyDay Multifocal for a second. We had the opportunity to do a preclinical trial with this lens this last summer. And there were a couple of things that I thought were really helpful. The first one is that it is different than a lot of the multifocals that we've used before in our practices where patients, especially early emerging presbyopes, really managed the, it didn't cause a lot of additional uh, distance blur for them. And the other thing that was really helpful was because we've never been involved in a clinical trial before was to understand uh, the sort of questions that we might ask our patients. And we ask a pa- our patients a lot of questions about their patient about their satisfaction with a contact lens, but what we weren't doing was actually having them score that themselves. So one of the parts of this that was really interesting to me was asking patients on a scale of one to 10, how they would score their vision, how they would score their comfort in their current lenses, and then how they would do the same on their uh, new lenses. And it showed me a lot of times where patients would say they were happy, might rate their vision as a six or a seven. And um, and then it also reframed their thinking about their current satisfaction in their lenses and allowed me to open up the door to offering other solutions. So if you haven't tried something like that in your clinical practice, I would encourage you to. And I would also encourage you to try the MyDay Multifocal for your patients. So Jim, thanks for being on. Thanks so much for doing this. Can you give our listeners a little bit of background in your research uh, and kind of what brought you to um, doing research uh, related to eyes? Well, yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it. It's a great opportunity. I mean, as a scientist, you know, sometimes you just toil away in the basement and (laughs) you're stuck in the lab. And I've been lucky enough to have, you know, uh, some success in the lab with with these nutrients that I've been studying and, uh, and, you know, to bring it sort of to the world and, and uh, see people benefit is really, really cool. Um, and so I've been doing this for about 25 years uh, where I'm, you know, looking at the effects of nutrition on uh, visual and cognitive health and performance. Um, I've, you know, worked at institutions like uh, the Duke Eye Center, Air Force Research Laboratory, University of Georgia. So I've been around and, uh, and studied all different kinds of populations, you know, ranging from, you know, very young, healthy individuals, uh, athletes, high-level athletes, professional athletes, uh, to, you know, the end of old, uh, end of, of life, sort of, you know, older age, you know, effects on things like macular degeneration, Alzheimer's disease. And, uh, and so, you know, 
the primary takeaway here is that, you know, folks aren't getting quite enough of the right stuff in terms of, you know, nutritional intake. Uh, we have, you know, a lot of evidence for that. Uh, we see these really dramatic effects from, you know, things like carotenoids, lutein, zeaxanthin, and mesozeaxanthin, for instance. These are nutrients that I've studied in, in great detail for a long time. And then the omega-3 fatty acids, DHA and EPA. Uh, if you bring those up to reasonable levels uh, in folks, you see a lot of, you know, benefits, uh, whole body benefits localized to the eye, the brain. And uh, and so largely my research is focused on on these five nutrients effectively. And, um, and yeah, tons of really interesting findings. It's not just my laboratory, it's, you know, others as well. So, you know, really exciting again to be able to talk to you about these things. Well, let's break it down and, and kind of put put people in a position of mindset in terms of evaluating evidence. So I think on the one side, when we think about how we can evaluate what evidence we have to know if we're going to be doing good for patients by putting them on a supplement. Let's say, for example, that I have a patient, and John Nolan and I talked about this a few years ago, but we'll just start with macular degeneration. You know, the common thing that, that you think about and the common thing that clinicians are sort of browbeat into is this idea of, okay, well, if a patient's not in category three or category four, what do I do for them for macular degeneration? And the answer from AREDS is you don't do anything. And so AREDS is yeah. uh, AREDS one, AREDS two, they're older studies. But how can we know without a really large randomized controlled trial like that, that we're doing good by, by approaching these patients and intervening earlier? What are your thoughts on that? And, and how do you look at the research to know that this is going to be uh, valid? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Um, it's unfortunate that, you know, the, the takeaways from the ARED studies were to basically wait till it's broken, you know, to fix it. That's a sort of standard for, you know, medical practice. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's not, it's veering off from the uh, preventive pathway, um, you know, and, and it is older science uh, for one thing. If you look at really well-controlled trials, uh, placebo-controlled randomized trials, uh, and you can basically accumulate pile on you know these you know these past 10 or 15 years dozens of these trials you know if not you know a hundred of these trials if you were to combine all the all the data from those trials placebo controlled you know exceptionally well-run studies uh, you'd have easily more uh, subjects more participants uh, than you would find in the ARETS trials and you'd see as well these benefits to younger individuals uh, the idea of getting out in front of this Thing, you know, preventing preventing the cumulative damage, which is which is really what you know leads to age-related diseases, macular degeneration, Alzheimer's disease, these kinds of things. It's the tissue wearing down. It can only take so much oxidation and inflammation. And so you couple, you know, these findings, which are incredibly strong, by the way, uh, building this these pigments up, you know, particularly in the eye here, the macular pigment with the lutein, zeaxanthin, and mesozeaxanthin. You build that up. You, you know, greatly reduce cumulative damage across the lifespan. You also get, you know, performance enhancement along the way, you know, better contrast sensitivity, speed of processing, you know, glare is not as bothersome, better vision in low light, all of these things we've shown in studies. So, you know, the gold standard placebo-controlled randomized controlled trial is, you know, that's clearly showing that we're getting benefit early. Uh, we've, you know, along with John Nolan, I was in a, on a study with him in early stage macular degeneration, 2017. And we showed in those folks, even in the midst of disease, 
Uh, we're finding, you know, a slow progression. We're finding visual performance improvements. And, and that speaks to the health of the tissue, and, you know, namely the retina here is what we're talking about. So you, know, you look at the properties of the nutrients themselves. You know, they're exceptional antioxidants. They're, they, they do physical quenching of free radicals, which means that there isn't a chemical turnover. So you quench the free radical. Uh, these nutrients, it's, it, again, it's physical, it's not chemical, so they can regenerate to do it over and over and over again. And this is why we see accumulation in the eye. Because you think about the retina, the highest metabolic rate of any tissue in the human body three times over, it's bringing in a ton of oxygen. There's a lot of oxidative stress there in the retina. If these nutrients couldn't take multiple hits of these free radicals, they would just go away instantly. And that's not what we see. They accumulate, and they accumulate in brain tissue as well. And uh, and so, you know, a lot of folks don't realize, you know, they're in the eye and the brain. They're also found systemically uh, where they act as a systemic, you know, antioxidant. Uh, you know, they increase the antioxidant capacity of the blood. There are all sorts of benefits that way as well. So you take everything, you know, in whole, and, you know, it's, it's hard to argue with, you know, the health benefits. Uh, it just, it makes a lot of sense given the biochemical properties, where they go, um, and then what we see in healthy individuals. Uh, they, if they develop age-related disease, it's very late in life. Uh, it's it's well into the 80s or early 90s. You know, I think the, the, the most important thing that I kind of take home, and I've, I've reiterated this a number of times when I talk to other doctors about macular degeneration, is I, I was kind of, years ago, I was still in this mindset of, well, that's what AREDS tells us. That's all we can do. And, um, and it's almost this defeatist position, like you said, where we're waiting until there's something medical that can be done, like an injection, when it's completely devastating, or there's enough uh, atrophy where patients aren't seeing anyway, so we're going to do low vision on them. And, and the real challenge is you really wrapping your mind around macular degeneration as a disease that doesn't impact patients for five years or 10 years. It didn't start five years ago with a, a druse, a, you know, intermediate druse and that advanced to a large druse and that advanced to a subfoveal geographic atrophy or something like that. It, it started years and years and years before that. And, and I think that's a challenge of a randomized controlled trial in this space, specifically related to somebody that wants to see an outcome that shows, you know, if we start patients before we see damage from macular degeneration or significant damage for sure of macular degeneration, if we watch, if we start them on some sort of supplement here and we watch them way down the line here, that's 20, 30 years down the line, that is a preposterously expensive. And the reality of controlling a study like that would be, I, I would imagine, insanely difficult. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, ideally in the dream world, you know, you do this crazy longitudinal study, you know, 20, 30 years, because you're right. I mean, the most current data indicate that AMD starts, you know, in your 30s, that those disease processes that, you know, cumulative, you know, lipofusin that starts to accumulate in the eye, this unmetabolized garbage. Uh, it's got that fluorophore in it, A2E, light hits that, spawns free radicals. Uh, ah, you know, it all accumulates and then it ends up leading to clogging up the RPE and you know the story there. Um, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's unfortunate uh, in some ways because, you know, what docs took away from it, you know, from AREDS is, you know, that specific thing, you have to wait. Uh, and, 
the one I, I should say the the one good piece that came out of Areds was it raised you know sort of this awareness of nutrition and its potential for you know impacting a disease and by the way very significantly you know preventing that you know progression from intermediate to, to late stage that's a good thing but man you're you're missing the point I think uh, with these nutrients because we're supposed to get them very early I mean I give lectures to pediatrics folks uh, we're finding you know, these effects in the womb, uh, where mom's diet, you know, lutein, zeaxanthin are getting to, uh, you know, the baby in the womb and doing really cool things there, even for the visual system, wiring up the retina, wiring up the brain. And so, uh, you know, I think it starts very early. We're supposed to be getting a lot of these nutrients and we just aren't. And so unfortunately, you know, I say, unfortunately, of course, it's great. We're living longer, but you know, unfortunately what's coupled with that are these age related diseases. If we don't, you know, take care of ourselves properly. So you made the point of living longer and, and that's an interesting one for me to think about because on the one hand, so from an evolution standpoint and from, from a mother nature standpoint of, of how our bodies work, is it in your, in your sense, is it that we're just living, we're outliving the jobs that those tissues are intended to do? Or have we had just this fundamental shift over the last eight to 800,000 years or whatever it is, uh, 800 to 1,000 years where we're, now our diets are so dramatically different that we're not consuming the things that we would have consumed before? Yeah, I mean, this is a fantastic question. I think that, you know, really stepping back, you know, zooming out 50,000 foot level, you look at, I mean, we have data on, you know, hunter-gatherer societies. There are still a couple left in the world. And, uh, and when you talk about how, you know, human physiology was designed in the first place, you can look at groups like the Hadza tribe in Tanzania and you know study their diet which is largely plant-based as you might imagine on average about 70 percent of their calories come from plants uh, their their intake uh, also a ton of fish um, you know lots of these you know omega-3 fatty acids coming in uh, and so then it doesn't take a it's not a stretch to you know draw a contrast between that and the you know modern you know western diet obviously so you've got you know that contrast there uh, the question about tissues if you maintain a, a healthy tissue, now granted, aging is what it is. You're, you know, we're aging right now, unfortunately, <laughs> but uh, it's happening. Uh, the thing is, is it's highly modifiable. Uh, and if you have the right stuff coming in, again, you, you know, the link between, you know, antioxidant capacity, for instance, um, you know, these omega-3s as well, maintaining healthy cardiovascular tissue and other tissues in the, in the body. Um, is is overwhelming and so you can make a difference uh, of you know 10 15 20 years of lifespan that way and maintaining function I mean I've seen people up to the age of 107 I, I you know studied a patient and she was you know sharp as a tack uh, you look at her of course non-smoker um, you know cognitive function incredible very high macular pigmentation. You know, she kind of grew up on a farm and, and you know, ate everything that came out of the ground, you know, all the leafy greens and all that, um, you know, and then also had a lot of fish. So there's there's a couple of really common, you know, things that swim together, uh, you know, for, for these kinds of folks. And and I'm not saying that everybody can live to 107, uh, but uh, but I think that, you know, stretching your your lifespan out is not an unreasonable suggestion if you feed your body the right things. The tissues can do it. It's a matter of keeping them healthy. You know, 
in, in areas like the brain and the eye, again, that metabolism required, it's going crazy. I mean, you know, as a, as a vision scientist, you know, and, and I'm sure you are well aware of the, you know, millions of reactions that are happening every second in the eye, just sitting here, you know, looking at a screen, uh, it's kind of staggering. And, and so with all of that comes a lot of, you know, responsibility in terms of cleanup, uh, you know, quenching free radicals, uh, keeping things moving efficiently. And unfortunately, that's, that's not really what we see, the, the cumulative damage that comes with all of that performance and mistreating our bodies over time by not giving them the right nutrients. Um, you know, that, that can lead to poor outcomes, of course, you know, ultimately disease. When you think about the, uh, the maybe the triad, I might be missing something, but uh, genetics and uh, exercise and diet, um, do you have a sense of which one is more important related to disease long-term or what are your thoughts there? Yeah, no, this, I'm really glad you brought that up because, you know, sort of the, the trinity of health is, you know, it, it's looking more like, you know, well, certainly genetics plays a huge role, but more on that later, uh, you know, diet, exercise, and sleep, you know, these three things, if yeah. you can do okay, at least in those areas, you're, you're going to be all right, I think. Um, you know, you might not nail them all 100%, but, you know, you want to strive for, for, you know, at least, you know, 75, 80 if you can. Um, genetics is an interesting thing. 50 years ago, genetics was still kind of viewed as destiny. You know, if, if something was in your family, it's just a matter of time. You know, for instance, macular degeneration. It's a matter of time before you, too, go blind. And, uh, I mean, that's a well, defeatist, you know, really kind of a sad kind of way of looking at things. Of course, we now know better. You can change uh, genetics. You can switch on, you know, beneficial genetics, this epigenetics idea. You can do, uh, the, turn these positive switches on with uh, exercise, of course. That's incredibly important. I would say to answer your question directly, exercise and diet have about an equal contribution, almost identical. And, and that comes from epidemiological data on people who exercise a lot. You see risk reduction, for instance, for macular degeneration at around 50%, 50% reduction. I mean, that's incredible, right? Just for really good exercise. Mm. You look at that same population mm, and great. diet, and if you're in the highest quintile, yeah, I mean, you're in the highest quintile for diet in terms of carotenoids, these special, you know, lutein, zeaxanthin, mesozeaxanthin, same thing, 46% reduction. So, I mean, you couple those things together. You, you don't smoke, good exercise, you know, you don't have to kill yourself, but, you know, get good, you know, sort of moderate to, to high level intensity exercise every day, good diet. It's, it's been estimated it's around 70 to 75% reduced risk for developing macular degeneration. Now, that's AMD, and that's, that's incredible. It speaks to the power of, you know, epigenetics. It speaks to the power of, you know, nurture, you know, this environment, you know, what you can do uh, to prevent these things. And it's not just AMD. I mean, we're talking about, you know, anti-cancer uh, kind of genes that are turned on, Uh you know, certainly with the common pathogenesis you see with uh, Alzheimer's disease, you know, we're seeing these same kinds of things happening for that as well. And, and you know, that is the sixth leading cause of death in America now, Alzheimer's disease. And so that's a, that's a big deal. We're seeing, you know, through some of our studies, you know, benefits of the, of the nutrients for that disease as well, not, not simply the retina. Well, can you talk about that a little bit? I think that's interesting because I think Alzheimer's is one that um, I don't think much about on a day-to-day -day basis, but my, um, you know, my wife's grandmother, 
her other grandmother is is de- is definitely having you know showing some signs of cognitive cl- decline. My grandfather had Alzheimer's. So, <clears throat> tell me about what your research is is showing there. So this is this goes back to I mean I I went to graduate school in New Hampshire and I used to drive about an hour uh, south down to Boston to Harvard Medical School where I you know worked as first as a research assistant and then all, and then later as a postdoctoral associate and and so with folks there um, one of the sort of godfathers of this area of research that lutein's zeaxanthin and mesozeaxanthin his name's Max Snodderly and I, I studied under him. He was the guy who characterized the macular pigment in, in, in really great detail. He had wonderful pictures of rhesus monkey ovias that were cross-sectioned. You could see the pigment. This was before we even knew what the nutrients were. So he was way ahead of the curve there. Uh, when we, this was in 1984, not when I was in graduate school, but when he actually did the, did the study. I, I'm not quite that old yet. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so... He found this, you know, and, and suspected that, okay, because it's these, these things have really, really high antioxidant capacity, plus they're yellow pigments, they can block shortwave high energy light. He, you know, predicted that, you know, yeah, they're, they're promoting really good visual health and, and performance. Turns out he was right. He ran a study that I was part of in 2000, in the year 2000, uh, that looked at cognition. So you supplement with these nutrients and, you know, over four months in um, in an older uh, female population, we found significant improvement in uh, cognitive function. That was the first evidence uh, of that. Uh, so memory performance, um, verbal fluency, you know, things like, uh, you know, name as many four-legged animals as you can in 30 seconds. Go. And, uh, you know, they improved significantly there. It was, it was pretty interesting versus placebo. And so, you know, that kind of started it all off. Uh, now, moving forward, we have lots of correlations in, across all age groups from pre-adolescent children clear through to, you know, really late life, you know, in, in average age of, you know, 75, 80 years old, where if you've got higher macular pigment, you've got higher levels in your brain of these nutrients and better cognitive performance. The most interesting study, I think, that, that came out of this uh, in terms of just the overall relationship was a study uh, from the University of Georgia. It's a centenarian study of, of really, really old people. And they're gracious people. They were, you know, average age of 98. And they came to the lab, uh, agreed to get measured, you know, their cognitive function, uh, macular pigment, of course, serum levels, you know, so blood was drawn. And then most importantly, perhaps, after they passed away, they had agreed to donate their brains to the lab for analysis of, of these carotenoids and other nutrients in brain tissue. So if you if you look at the data from that study, and this was published in 2013, uh, it's astonishing. You look at just lutein, and this was the one, the primary carotenoid in the brain was, was lutein, one of the three components of the macular pigment. You find that those with good cognitive health, good, good cognitive performance before death, uh, had very high levels of lutein in, in the brain. Uh, those with subjective memory complaints, slightly lower. Those with mild cognitive impairment, not even pathology, just mild cognitive impairment, significantly lower levels of lutein. All the other carotenoids were basically the same in the brain. It was lutein that was accounting for you know these effects. So 
pretty fascinating. You know, when you think about folks who've lived that long um, with a relation to cognitive function and, uh, you know, and significantly higher lutein in the brain. The last thing I'll mention is, you know, we did a study on uh, people with Alzheimer's disease in, you know, severe, uh, moderate, uh, mild levels of, of Alzheimer's disease, a supplementation study with the macular carotenoids and uh, DHA and EPA supplement together. Uh, this was in 2018, published, and uh, and so what was we it, found Jim, was, was that, it 10, I mean, as you can imagine, like is, you usually do. Is it 10, 10, and 2 plus? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's right, yeah. Okay, and EPA and DHA, what levels? The ratio, yeah. And so it was uh, it was 10 milligrams lutein, 10 mesozeaxanthin, 2 milligrams zeaxanthin, so the 10, 10, 2 ratio, and uh, DHA, 430 milligrams, and I believe uh, 85 milligrams of EPA. So we know DHA uh, is a primary component of the neural membrane and, you know, sort of in the retina and the brain, a lot of fat, uh, DHA is super important to, you know, health and performance there in the brain. So you do that, you, you, you supplement for 18 months, these folks. And, you know, like I was saying earlier, it's a very difficult population to study. As you might imagine, you rely a lot on the caregivers and their reports. And so we had structured interviews with caregivers and those folks know their patients really well, of course. Um, and so what we find is, you know, the slower progression, uh, significantly slower progression in those receiving the supplement uh, versus not. And, uh, and so that's preliminary evidence, uh, certainly, but uh, very exciting, even in the midst of disease. Uh, so, you know, I've got my parents <laughs> taking these supplements, uh, you know, and, you know, I, I have been taking these supplements for a long time now and their macular pigment is very high and, and, you know, certainly so far so good. Uh, they're in their mid seventies and they're doing fine, but, but yeah, you don't want to take any chances with that because if you have any experience with, with, you know, Alzheimer's disease, you know, it, it can be devastating and, um, you know, you don't want that, you know, certainly the, the burden, um, you know, on, on a family, uh, it's, it's just a sad thing to watch. Of course, I have some experience with that as well. And so, you know, the benefit to society, to society could be, you know, massive here. If we can have a, you know, a prophylactic, uh, preventive, you know, way of, of dealing with this, get out in front of it, you know, just like with macular degeneration. Yeah. You know, you, you brought up a point about, um, nutrition and I think it can be easy for us to sort of as a, as a profession is to say, well, eat better eat more fish, eat more green leafy vegetables. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, that's, <laughs> I always say, you know, hey, diet, if you can get these things from the diet, it's probably better because, you know, fish, uh, for instance, has more than just omega-3s in it. It's got other, you know, proteins and whatnot. Uh, same thing with leafy greens. Uh, you, you get certainly some lutein other, you know, three or hundred nutrients from spinach. Unfortunately, there, there are two issues here. The, you know, the fact that we need a consistent supply of these nutrients, like regular every day, uh, that's not met uh, by really anybody. I mean, even folks that have a, an exceptionally healthy diet often miss the mark on that. Uh, we did several studies while I was at the University of Georgia um, and we'd characterize, you know, everybody would estimate, you know, the servings of fruits and vegetables every day because we wanted to control for diet in our supplementation studies. And we'd have some of the students there that report, you know, eight to 10 servings of you know, fruits and vegetables a day, which is astonishing, right? That's a lot. And so 
we pull these folks aside and we say, tell me about your day, you know, go through your day. Tell me what you eat. You know, here's, and you know, it's crazy. They hit it eight to 10 servings a day. However, you know, some of the key types of vegetables, these leafy greens and, and other colored fruits and vegetables are not anywhere to be found on the list. And so you're not getting, you know, they're not our favorite types of foods. That's, that's one thing. That's one issue. So lack of consistency. Um, most of us, we eat a salad, you know, every couple of days or something, and that's great. Yeah, you know, it's good, generally healthy, but you know, if it's, you know, romaine lettuce, uh, mixed greens, often not, certainly not enough of these types of nutrients. Um, the other issue is the quality of the food uh, that we're seeing, uh, you know, in the modern day. Uh, this is not just me talking. It's not some conspiracy theory. It's data from, you know, the United States Department of Agriculture. You look at spinach, a bowl of spinach from 19, roughly 1950 compared to a bowl of spinach in the year 2000. Uh, the nutrient density of that spinach, and this is across the board, all nutrients, is decreased by one forty-third. I mean, this is you know, you take the spinach down. You know, you have to eat, you have to eat forty-three bowls of a of a two thousand spinach versus a nineteen fifty bowl of spinach, and so which is sounds crazy. And now, you know, that gets to the point that you know, uh, in terms of processing. Um, you know, spinach in 1950 or 1953, I believe is the exact date they analyzed. Uh, you know, this is grown outside uh, in the sun, struggled. The plant upregulates protection for itself in the form of lutein. And so, you know, it's like really good wine. You want the grapes to struggle, almost mm. die, and they upregulate all the good stuff. Uh, same thing with spinach uh, or, or other plants. Anything we eat, really, uh, they generate, they synthesize their own protective factors. We eat those things, that, you know, spinach in this case, we derive the benefits. Now, in the modern day, of course, processing, trying to get the most, you know, volume uh, to the grocery store, you know, companies grow largely the spinach inside. Uh, under fluorescent lights, they don't struggle. They have plenty of water and nutrition. Uh, they don't have to upregulate these protective factors. And uh, consumers generally prefer the soft feel of the, you know, the sort of weak baby spinach leaves, um, which are the ones that you actually want to avoid if you're going to choose spinach. You want spinach is rough and, you know, has barky stems. Anyway, it's not all spinach is created equally, but, you know, to guarantee that you're getting enough, um, you know, supplementation is a no-brainer. Um, you know, I, I just, you know, there's there's no other way. We, we see studies, you know, we take blood and people claiming to eat a lot of these nutrients just don't have it in their blood. They're either lying or the quality of food is, is not good. You get them on a supplement and then boom, you know, it's up there and it's consistent when it's highly, when it's consistently high in your bloodstream, body knows what to do with it. That's when you start moving the needle in the eye, the brain, cardiovascular tissue, all of these benefits come. So I know I, I told you we, I'd kind of be respectful of your time, but I'm not going to do that because I had, a, I still have another question about, um, <laughs> I have another question That's about fine. omega-3s. <laughs> the, the, um, when you think about what's important related to omega-3s, and we'll specifically, I mean, I know you mentioned uh, brain health, um, but but specifically related to uh, ocular surface um, issues, what what do you think is important? Why do we get sometimes we'll see big studies like the Dream Study that everybody kind of <clears throat> says, oh, omega threes aren't helpful. But then you get a lot of other smaller studies that 
do find a benefit a benefit based on symptoms and i mean what's your what's your thought on that how what how should we be thinking about it yeah again you know it's it's a tricky thing with studies and we discussed arids another you know sort of large government funded study before found benefit and indeed the dream study technically found benefit i mean it just wasn't versus a an olive oil placebo um, you know, there, there are, with large studies, uh, you get to say, well, we had a lot of people in the trial. Uh, you can extend this to pretty much anybody if you have findings. Uh, and that's a great thing. Uh, certainly, it's a benefit of a big study. Uh, a problem with a big study is, you know, variability. You know, you've got, you know, compliance issues potentially. Um, and, and also with the DREAM study, it should be noted that, you know, other measures, uh, other, other treatment uh, modalities weren't restricted with regard to dry eye. So, you know, you, you got this, I think it was a 13, 15% reduction in, in dry eye symptoms, which is a benefit, but you know, where is it coming from exactly? And how, you know, if you're not taking your patients off of other, you know, sort of treatments for dry eye, how do you differentiate? And so <clears throat> the overwhelming evidence, I mean, it's, it's sad, it's frustrating, you know, to see results like that from the dream study. Um, but the overwhelming evidence, like you mentioned, uh, for these omegas and in terms of ocular surface disease, they're overwhelmingly hugely positive. Um, and you know, you only have to look at really carefully controlled trials uh, that look at really specific, you know, mybum uh, profile, lipid profiles, for instance. You know, you find DHA, EPA in there. Um, we know the properties of these nutrients. They, we know where they go, kind of like lutein zeaxanthin and mesozeaxanthin. Uh, they actually treat directly. They go in, they find their way, you know, largely these, you know, the clogging up of the, my, the meibomian glands. You know, one of the primary cloggers of the meibomian glands is triglycerides. You know, and what do cardiovascular patients get, uh, you know, <laughs> that have really high triglycerides? Fish oil supplements, which have been shown to greatly reduce triglycerides. Um, so it kind of makes sense. You break up those triglycerides at the meibomian glands. You get this, you know, tear breakup time that, you know, is doubling and in, in many cases tripling uh, when you go on these supplements. Careful controlled trials. They may be smaller. They may have 80, 100 individuals. Placebo control, proper placebo or no treatment versus, you know, omegas is not exactly what you found in the dream study. Um, they're showing this benefit, and it's multifactorial. I mean, the uh, the omegas, again, these are things that we don't get enough of, and there are so many benefits to patients. Dry eye is certainly a major one. Uh, I wholeheartedly believe in it. Um, you know, you, you can track your, you know, omega-3 index in your blood uh, and then look at that cross-sectionally with dry eye, and you find a strong relationship there. Um, you know, again, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. You, you find these pro-inflammatory cytokines on you know on the corneal surface, um, IL six, IL seventeen A, which is highly specific to dry eye disease, reduced uh, significantly with with omega three uh, treatment. So um, yeah, there's just there's a lot of evidence. I I it, I'm a scientist, and so I pay attention to all the data. I weigh it all, and uh, and you know, in my opinion, it's a, a really a no brainer. You know, that the omegas are you know, safe. Um, they've been in the diet for a long time. You just look at the diets of healthy individuals, Mediterranean diet. I mentioned the Hadza earlier. You know, 
the study of omega-3 intake in the Hadza tribe showed a range from 2.26 grams per day to 17 grams per day in Jeez. terms of the omega-3s EPA and DHA. So, <laughs> which is, it's crazy, right? 17 grams a day. They're averaging around 10 grams a day. So they're eating a lot of fish. Uh, this is what human physiology is, is, you know, again, designed on. And so, um, you know, Mediterranean diet, the Japanese, same thing, um, you know, relatively low levels of, uh, of dry eye disease, despite the fact they're smoking a lot more than, than we do here in the West nowadays. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's really pretty clear uh, to me, uh, despite the dream study, uh, we're, we're looking at, you know, real benefit to patients. Yeah, I think they. I think the dream study missed in a couple ways. I mean, I, I, I've I've made this comment multiple times before, but I think I think largely we need to be able to look at at clinical indicators to show us benefit um, that are not just symptomatic. So I'll see some studies that that kind of counter the dream study that do show symptomatic improvement compared to placebo, but then everything else, like all the signs that they looked at, didn't show any benefits. It's like, okay, we get a symptomatic benefit with placebo, but but we didn't look at the right signs. So then we'll just kind of scratch our head. I think it's largely related to really two factors, and I'm probably missing some others, but I think it has to do with what you're talking about in terms of of, um, of mybum, and I also think it has to do with the inflammatory control that uh, that or the anti-inflammatory properties that um, DHA and EPA have specifically, and I think that's the main reason. And I think then if we can if we can target as clinicians, if we can target our patient populations to who is who has those who are who are more at like risk for those characteristics or who have those characteristics, you know, thick mybum, um, infl inflammation someplace on the ocular surface, and we can measure that a number of different ways. And you alluded to some of them, and I think we'll probably have some of those ways to actually measure it clinically um, in a relative uh, relatively soon. Uh, I know some of them are already available, but. Uh, I think that's where, as a clinician, I can say, yeah, I, I know that's why we're we're getting a benefit because these other smaller studies kind of point to that, but the bigger studies aren't looking at those things. So I, I suspect that had the DREAM study looked at other inflammatory markers specifically, they may not have found as, they may have found some other association. Um, they may not, I mean, so so anyway, the, I, that's my suspicion of why the DREAM study didn't have some of the other findings that would have shown it to be a benefit beyond just symptomatic improvement. And then the last question that I've got for yeah. you is um, the difference between uh, re-esterified uh, omega-3s and uh, triglyceride form. Is that important? Why is it, why is it important? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. It's super important. And, and yeah, I mean, just getting back to your comment there real quick, um, you know, I want to turn every OD into a clinician scientist. I mean, I really think this is a lot of fun. You know, once you have the proper measurement tools, you can do this. And, uh, and you know, we get a ton of data from, you know, clinician scientists now, just even if it's informal, I get folks sending me stuff. And it's very interesting, uh, again, looking at the symptoms that you need to, uh, you know, looking at actual measures, hardcore inflammation, all of that. Um, and, and one other comment, uh, you know, this, these, this idea of ratio, uh, DHA, EPA, EPA to DHA, well, what's the magic ratio and, and all of that. And it's, it's kind of a silly thing, um, really, uh, when you, when you look at it, because they, they, these two omega threes act in, you know, they, they complement each other. Uh, and really, if you look at healthy diets, I mentioned Japanese Mediterranean, the Hadza, 
you see roughly a one-to-one ratio uh, across the board. We largely have thought, and these are misconceptions now, that EPA is the better systemic anti-inflammatory. Not true. Uh, we're finding DHA and I mentioned the mybum uh, is you know it's doing work there, anti-inflammatory work all over the body. Uh, it has you know special resolvins that come off of it. So they're equally potent in terms of anti-inflammatory action. Um, you know, we, we, we just have a lot of evidence now to suggest that this equal ratio, you give the body what it needs and it can regulate and do what it needs to do everywhere. Now, getting back to your re-esterified triglyceride versus ethyl ester, um, the processing of, of fish oil, uh, how you, you know, refine it, uh, that process involves stripping the fatty acids off of their glycerol backbone. And, and what that means, the triglyceride. Uh, so you have these three things coming off of a, of a backbone. And, you know, these are the, the, the omegas are here and this backbone's here. And it's a glycerol backbone. It's the natural way of, uh, you know, it's how, it, how it's found in fish. Uh, it's highly bioavailable. Um, a cheaper and easier way uh, to get these nutrients uh, to market is to just cleave uh, the omega-3s off of that glycerol backbone, and then they bind to an ethyl alcohol backbone. Uh, so it, it's termed ethyl esters. And so, um, you know, when, when your body processes an ethyl ester versus a uh, reesterified triglyceride form of these omega-3s, uh, the product is effectively methanol. So it's, you know, it's, it's an acid. And I like to do the, um, you know, the demonstration in a styrofoam cup. If you have an ethyl ester fish oil pill, you can break it open, let it drain into a styrofoam cup. And in a matter of about 15 or 20 seconds, that's burned a hole through the bottom of the styrofoam cup. Uh, that's, you know, sort of you're putting that into your body and that's, that's a bit worrisome. Maybe more importantly, from an absorption, a bioavailability standpoint, the re-esterified triglyceride form has exceptionally better uh, bioavailability to the body. It's the natural form. You don't have these byproducts that come off, um, you know, into the body, this, this methanol thing, uh, which can, you know, upset the stomach. It can contribute to, you know, the sort of fish burps and other issues that you might have with, uh, with, with fish oil supplements. Jim Stringham. Thanks so much for doing this. I, I learned a ton today. Uh, it was a lot of fun to get to know you a little bit better. And uh, where can people find you if they want to hear and read more about what you're doing? Thanks, Chris. This was great. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Jim Stringham, or if you want to reach out directly to me, I have no problem with that. I can send studies. We can chat about things. Uh, it's J Stringham. That's J Stringham at MacuHealth.com. Awesome. Thanks, Jim, so much.